This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I have the privilege of introducing our next speaker, and uh, I hope that we have given our next speaker warm California sunshine, and I know you will give Carl Dvorak from Wisconsin a warm California uh, applause. Carl is the president of EPIC, and he is responsible for EPIC's research and development area. EPIC is one of the nation's largest privately owned vendors of healthcare information technology. I'm not sure, Carl, that EPIC needs much more of an introduction. <laughs> We're so thrilled that you joined us from my father's alma mater from Madison and where my family's from. So thank you so much for coming. Proverbial clicker. Well, thank you for inviting me. I always wonder at the end of the day why people invite me, but we'll see if that works. Um, we had a little bit of a video. Are we going to be able to play it or not? Okay, we'll skip the video. It was, it was a great video. On uh, You'll have to watch it on uh, YouTube. It's from Louis C.K. being interviewed by Conan O'Brien. And it's everything great, nobody's happy. And what always surprises me in so many healthcare settings that people often get up on a stage and they spend their first two, three, four minutes decrying all that's wrong with healthcare. Healthcare's broken, I think, seems to be the, the mantra everyone chants. And what's always surprised me, I've been at Epic a while, a little bit over half my life now, and uh, in that time frame, 20, 27, 28 years at Epic, I've seen just a tremendous amount of change. And when you go pop up Wikipedia or you walk through one of these wonderful organizations that, that Terry showed pictures of earlier, and you see the little museum case sections, the equipment, the, the settings, and you think what healthcare was 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, 80 years ago, and you think about where it is today and where it might be in 20 years and 40 years and 60 years, and it's probably the most amazing progression, right? You drop that line, and it's got to be one of the best lines in history. Um, it's amazing what people in healthcare have figured out how to do and how to do well, and it's one of those few industries, um, there, there are a couple, but when you, when you bring a new person into healthcare and there's a problem, and you sit down and you go through it, and and they have this sort of inherent sense of good enough. And what you have to help new people in healthcare understand is that there is no sense of good enough, right? You're, you're on a march towards zero errors. You're on a march towards perfection. You're on a march to figure out how to get to the very essence of disease and cure. So it's always one of those uh, interesting things. But I recommend that video. Louis C.K., everyone, everything's wonderful. Nobody's happy. You'll, you'll get a laugh out of it. Um, one, one thing interesting happened this week, actually from, from uh, San Francisco here, what Doc had a... Uh, got a headline that comes through because you can watch for all the headlines and, and it was a doctor who was upset about this EMR thing and, and, and I saw and it came on my screen because it had the word epic mentioned in it and I thought oh gosh there's another doctor who hates charting and I popped the article open and, and really what was going on was this doctor who, who was realizing that we're in this new age where I used to write things on, on page paper I could do what I thought was right I could spend time with the patients has become this ever ever growing thirst for data which is ultimately used to measure them. And, and his, his real point was, we're, we're in this new era of the quantified physician. Everyone wants me to instrument everything down to the little bitty byte, put the ones and zeros into a computer somewhere, and then they're going to bounce it back at me on a screen. And that was a life that, that he just didn't like. And, and yet it's the life that most of the physicians in the country today are experiencing. Um, I think there are ample opportunities for innovation to help make this better, to help us get to where we'll be in 20 years and 40 years. 
<clears throat> and I thought at first it would be interesting just to remind people of different kinds of innovation. I think people often assume innovation is three people sitting in a room trying to come up with this genius idea. And, and that, that happens sometimes, right? Things that were never done before, the, the Sony Walkman. Jeez, carry your stereo with you. That's a wonderful idea. Um, and then the iPod, iTunes, put, put something that was, that was there. The idea was there, but put it together in a new way with iTunes and, and make it easy for everyone, and you inspire a whole new revolution. We see reengineering in business models, the sort of thing you're going through right now. How do you, how do you look at ACOs and virtual enterprises? Um, you could buy a copy of Microsoft Office, or if you don't mind the ads, you can get it free. You're, it's a difference in how things are being paid for. They're, if you look at Google's earnings, they're absolutely being paid for, just in a new way. And simply reducing friction, reducing clicks, eliminating unnecessary steps, making life more pleasant and, and easier for people is, is another important form of innovation, especially as we look at health records. Um, for 20 years, technology was very stable. You had a Windows workstation, a keyboard, and a mouse, and you expressed your creativity with a 15- or 17-inch monitor. That was it. Um, but the world's changed. There are tons of really great opportunities to leverage new kinds of technology to, to make things more and more friction-free. And then my favorite, doing the right thing at the right time. Too soon and it doesn't work. Too late and it's too late. So there's, there's a magic moment where, where the confluence of, of all the important pieces come together that you need to strike at innovation. And there are simple ways to innovate too. It, what always catches us is I walked around some of the posters uh, this morning and as people were bringing them up. First, I love the electronic posters. Those are cool. It, it's the simple things that make a big difference. Uh, one, of the, one of the cute things, we, we integrated the uh, patient portal with uh, Fitbit and Y things. So one of the cool ideas is to create a, a program where if patients wear their Fitbits and the data streams into their health system, and if they keep a current level of activity, their employer can fund their copays. So we called it Walk Away From Your Copay. Get your 70,000 steps a week in. And again, just putting the different pieces together. Uh, one of the things that, that really has the potential to, to revolutionize healthcare, and, and you mentioned that some of them this morning, um, we're fortunate to be working with Minute Clinics, so those, those Minute Clinics that pop up like mushrooms will actually have Epic inside. And as we worked with the people at Minute Clinics, we realized there are just amazing opportunities for health systems that will, or, or, or specialty centers or organizations that will tend towards perfection on the really hard pieces to work with organizations that, that really focus on efficiency on simple things and, and how those organizations could work together. So one of the things we will be doing with the Minute Clinics is figure out how can we reduce the friction in Minute Clinics' interaction with larger health systems and specialty organizations. How can they become an extension of you providing low-cost services that would, would benefit your patients or your contracts? It's always interesting to come to the Valley and uh, deal with uh, the folks that... Uh, are, are the uh, venture capital types, the innovator types. They, they have all kinds, of, all kinds of things they do. And we're in the middle of this puzzle right now where people have this thesis that if we somehow did things different with technology and opened it up and had a, a million pieces and let people like you stitch all the pieces together, that we'd come out with a unicorn system on the other side. And, and I... I understand what makes people think that sometimes, and I understand that sometimes the venture capital and the money drives people down that path. But we had an interesting opportunity to talk with uh, Clay Christensen. This is, I asked him if I could take pictures of his office. I always like to zoom in on the books and see what books smart people read. 
And uh, he was interesting. We talked about this modularity question, which is really raging right now at the national, the federal level. You'll, you'll see it if you poke around some of the, the JSON report. You'll see it if you look at MITRE's recommendations. You'll hear it from the VA a lot, this notion of modularity. So we, we, we talked to Clay Christensen about that specific topic. And it was interesting. He said for modularity to succeed, and, and I think you can think of this not just in software, not just in mechanical things. You can also think of it as business units and clinical groups and hospitals and, and research organizations. So think about it more broadly than just, than just equipment. My world is equipment or, or software. But. So his points were interesting. He said, first, for modularity to succeed, you've got to be able to spec out all the modules and all the interactions that they'll have. It makes sense, I guess. And then you must be able to completely test to that spec, preferably in an automated manner. And then third, you should be able to guarantee that no disruption in any one of the modules could bring down all the rest. Right? That's, that's the thesis that, that modularity requires. And, he's, and you hear a lot of people give examples, and one of the things you realize is, although people build things in component fashion so that components can be easily replaced, most often they're components that are highly engineered towards the task. Right? You don't, you don't swap engines off of different airplanes. You make sure the engine's built for the airplane, the weight, the size, the shape, the aerodynamics. You, you build things to work together. So, so his thesis was that modularity is a great thing, and it does disrupt sometimes, but he had three impediments that he said almost always thwart modularity. The high rate of change, high complexity, and a low tolerance for risk, which pretty much describes healthcare. It would help me understand the, the 1980s, the, what was known as the era of best of breed, I think was really more or less a failure because it's hard to put all those pieces together, and once you put them together, they don't really stay together that well. So it really emboldened our thesis that integration is what actually will help enable the next wave of innovation in healthcare. So that's our focus. We try to put all the pieces together that we can, and we build them with design ahead of time to try to make them work. But I think that the thesis is the important thing for you folks, not the specifics, that, that coming together in new and creative ways is what helps you innovate. And it's fun. I know someone mentioned Kaiser folks in the room. They're a great example. They integrate things. And once you've done that, then you can do a whole new layer of, of creative things on top of it. So in terms of challenges, user interface, I think, is one of the big challenges we all face in the technology front. I know there are a lot of people here from clinical care and also research and, and probably some informatics. One of the things that we realize is that we need to bring the technology people much more close to the frontline clinical care people and, and much more close to the research people and, and make sure that the kinds of things we're creating benefit from the in-clinic experience and hospital experience, that we're closely instrumenting ourselves in what we do to make sure that we're measuring to, to verify that we are taking an appropriately simple and as uh, painless path as we can with clinicians. It's hard for clinicians, especially as people want more and more data from them. Making sure you test usability. Anyone here use Pinterest? Couple? It's a wonderful place. If, you, if you're responsible in any way, shape, or form for design, if you're responsible to understand elegance and how to apply elegance to your facilities or your software or your programs or, or your anything, Pinterest is a, a great way to go and see what's new and happening with design. It's a real simple way to do it, so I highly recommend that. And then make sure that everything that you've done in the past, you're willing to blow up and do again. So we constantly try to blow things up and reinvent them. And you realize you have to blow it up three or four times before you find something that sticks. So we do that. And I think another thing that will help in our world of data is finding new and creative ways to visualize the data, helping the physicians see what the data means. It's, it's not that much fun to pour through a big old flow sheet or to pour through 
uh, an Excel file of information. It's about the visualizations, and I think that's a huge opportunity for innovation. Definitely seeing a large push. Again, I think this comes from the, the large infusion of money that Meaningful Use brought and, and the venture capital that chases it, but a huge, huge push to commercialize data. And we've, we've taken a different approach to that. One of the things that we've done is working with the user community to set up a research data network so that organizations like the UCs, if you'd like, could team up with three, four, five, ten organizations and pull your data together for multi-center studies. So one of the things that we've done is worked to connect the electronic health record directly to a tank where researchers can stream data in a safe and secure manner that, that has a, a commitment from us not to sell the data. And they can use it to, to learn and to enhance what they do in their research programs across a broader and broader base of patients. The other aspect of this um, that we'll touch on in a little bit is the privacy and security and how do we manage consent and, and all those sorts of things. If you get into uh, the policy work that goes on behind this. It's actually quite complicated, and I, I don't know where that all goes, but I think in terms of what you all can bring to the game, is helping set some of that policy, and that originates in Washington. I, th I, th I thought it was interesting that Terry mentioned Dartmouth and um, Mayo, I think it was, with offices in Washington. A lot of people are trying to control that conversation right now, and to some extent it's because some people want to commercialize the data. If you actually read the JSON report, what you'll realize it's the same as the PCAST report, which is actually an initiative by a small number of companies that really want to drive the data out of your health systems and out into the open where they can advertise based on it. That's really the underlying thing that's going on there. So anyways, it's a great opportunity for your policy people to participate right now. And we have a, a large group of, of customers that would like to see some UC customers on there working on, on creating this and managing it through time. All right, I'm going to switch topics a little bit. Um, in terms of innovation, one of, the, one of the key things that we'll have to deal with for the future is how to bring patients that last mile, that connection to the, to the systems. And for context, uh, one of the things we did, we went out and looked at 12 different organizations. They, they were average organizations. And we looked at how many people at those organizations use the computer system, right? What you think of as an electronic health system, maybe scheduling included, but, but use the computer system. And across those 12 organizations in that seven-day period, it was about 130,000 users, your doctors and nurses and schedulers. If we went out to a 30-day window, it was about 150,000 there that used it. In that same seven-day window, though, if we counted up the number of unique patients that used the system, it was almost 700,000. And if we went out to the 30-day window and looked at how many unique patients accessed their own health record on those very same systems, it was almost 1.4 million. And this is something that we'd seen coming for a long time. We, we started the, the MyChart patient portal work back in the 2000s, as, as others had as well. Um, but when you put all these pieces together and you actually give the patient control over their own health record, and not just the ability to see things and stream data to them, but let them interact... <clears throat> they quickly become the biggest user base that you have. So this has really influenced us over the last several years. When we design features and functions, it's not just about the doctor and the nurse. Obviously, there's work to do there to make sure it's good for them. But we also think of every single thing that we do with the patient first because they are, in fact, the single biggest users of our systems. So it's, it's a new and interesting way to think about things. Especially with the, with the technology pieces. So what I thought I would do is to finish up on this notion of patient engagement. And I think 
in many ways, this is the, the fertile green field where, where opportunities to innovate and to get clever and creative and put things together in ways that no one has put things together. So the kinds of things that I think, that I think you'll see become every day, when, when I think five years, ten years down the road, these are things that I think will just be absolutely commonplace across the world. So the ability for a patient to, to get time with their clinicians as appropriate without inconveniencing somebody at a front desk. We have sites today that have plans to reduce their scheduling staff by at least 50% within two years by letting patients work their own schedules. Brand new patients, as well as patients who are already there, there are clever things that are, that are done so that if, if you, obviously nobody wants patients scheduling the MRI scanner on their own, that's, that's probably not very smart. But if a physician, <clears throat> excuse me, if a physician had ordered something for a patient, we create a ticket, and then the patient can see their ticket, and they can schedule to the spec of their ticket. That makes perfect sense. It's easy for the patient. It's easier for the healthcare organization. So all things scheduling. And I don't know if you've seen the statistics. I think the last time I saw them, it was about 25% of the people access the Internet with only a mobile device. They don't sign on to a computer. So everything that we do and everything we think about for the patient is thought about through the context of the mobile device first. The, the website is, is becoming an afterthought. And with t- phones and large phones and small tablets and larger tablets, I, I think that's the right direction. That's where we'll see people go. So everything on a phone. Another interesting puzzle um, that we're trying to help people solve is, I think Kaiser might have even coined the term, the unused inventory problem. I think it's probably a Jim Chang term from Northern California, where if Mrs. Smith is admitted to the ED at 3 in the morning, we know she's not going to show up for her 9 o'clock cardiology appointment, right? We, We can tell. So what the computer can do behind the scenes is first realize that and second act on it. So looking at people who are on a waiting list or people who have been marked as priority, we can serially go out there and ping them and say, hey, would you like to move up and step into this 9 o'clock appointment tomorrow morning? And again, once, once that time slips by, you'll never, you'll never reclaim that opportunity. And this helps the, helps the organization be more and more schedule efficient by pulling those patients in. And obviously you could spam them and take first come, first serve or serially do it so that nobody feel like you offered it and then pulled it back on them. One interesting thing we found, and this has become exceedingly important, I think, for everybody uh, in the world of high-deductible health plans, is that if you can put the ability to capture a payment in the pathway the patient uses to find out more information about their visit, so results, right? You had a test in the office. Your results are coming. They're going to sign on to a portal to see the results. If you can put the ability to pay in that pathway, your patient payments zoom up dramatically. Not a little bit. They zoom up dramatically. So simplifying and streamlining payment processes, and I know it wasn't that long ago when you went to a, a hospital or an ED. EDs are the worst ones. If you went to an ED and you had something done, you'd get a bill, and you'd be smartest if you waited at least three weeks. Get all the bills, figure out which ones make sense, and, and deal with it. So I think people's natural response to a health care bill that comes in the mail is to wait. And if you can streamline this and put it online and let people pay for what they're confident is, is right and good, they tend to pay it, and they tend to pay it much more quickly. Uh, multilingual, that's fairly obvious here. <clears throat> the other thing that we see happening around the country in, in little, little experiments and little pockets, depending on the payers and the, and the health systems, 
managed care systems obviously do, obviously do more of this than fee-for-service systems. But leveraging e-visits and video visits, I think uh, Stanford was actually one of the first ones to go live on video visits out here in, in California. And a lot of creativity with payers on how they deal with it. So if I have a video visit, I'll pay for it. But if the patient shows up within 14 days, then I'm going to dock you on the payment for that office visit. And we'll consider this triage to that office visit, for example. And taking it down to the, the patients on the mobile devices, uh, making things as convenient as possible, then making it so the doctor can do a, a visit from their iPad with a patient who's on an on a Android phone or something like that. One of the fun things that, that, that is happening is computer intelligence. Uh, the, the natural language processing is, is a good first step, but, but applying algorithms behind the scenes. So, for example, if a patient's typing a note to their doctor, the computer can be listening to what they're typing and making a determination behind the scenes that this sounds a little bit more serious than average and offer to convert it to a chat where they can have a, an operator chatting back and forth and from there convert it to a video visit and, and work it further. So these kinds of innovations, well, first off, it's just kind of cool. Patients like it, so you get, you get some benefit just simply because patients feel you've made their life easier. But what it does on the inside of healthcare systems that's a little bit more subtle is it helps you connect need, patients got an issue and they're trying to connect with you about it, with the resources. And the thing the computer does behind the scenes is it tries to always understand where are my available resources in real time. Is there someone available that could hop on a video chat with this patient? Well, if there's not, we'll do it the old-fashioned way. But if I've got opportunity, I'll connect those people in real time. And when you think about what innovations the HEBs and the Amazons and the people bring to their business models with technology, it's not just about the front-facing part. It's not just about patient convenience. It's, it's as much about orchestrating resources behind the scenes and making that real-time pinpoint connection as, as moments tick by. I think... Uh, Things like kiosks and all that will just, will just go by the wayside at some point. Uh, everything that a patient really needs to do at a check-in can be done on their phone. You could have the barcode thing. They could just scan a QR code on the wall and tell you that they're here, and, and everything could light up. So I think we'll see a lot of innovation in, in patient movement and tracking and understanding where people are in the healthcare process. Things like making surgery easier. But my wife had to donate a kidney. She didn't have to, but she chose to donate a kidney to a, a stranger, which is wonderful, I guess. Um, but going into to the hospital at 4 in the morning, trying to find the door in the dark, in the cold winter, in the dark, um, it was a miserable experience. And you think, well, wouldn't, wouldn't this be... This could obviously be made a lot easier. So thinking about how we streamline the patient experience through what have become some fairly sophisticated and complex processes that are engineered for safety... Um, and they're a little bit engineered right now for the convenience of the caregiver, not as much engineered towards the convenience of the patient. But through tools like this, I think we can, we can cross that divide and make it convenient for both caregivers and for patients. Um, tools that help with everyday things, uh, the, the prenatal care and, and, and tracking, right up to, hey, I'm, I'm coming in to have a baby type things. I think those are the things that patients will will wonder what's wrong with you as a health system if you don't have them in five years. It's, it's going to be the, the price of admission, I think. Patients' control of their own data is another big thing. We're, we're about to unleash interoperability on the world, and I think it's going to be an amazing next five or six years as people get all the upgrades to all their software and, and all the, the HIEs agree finally on standards and such. It'll unleash a, a new wave of confusion on the world. Patients won't know, how did you get that? 
I didn't want you to have that. Doctors will be faced with this onslaught of information that they have to pick apart and understand and make sure and update their records. We'll try to automate that as best as possible, but it's not always trivial. You'll, you'll hear echoes of the past. You may have a more refined version of the problem, but you're going to find that they were visiting a different health system. Who's going to shoot you data that actually re- adds older versions of things to the patient's record? So you'll, you'll have a lot of complications that come with this. But again, the, the thesis is making everything under the control of the patient. Estimates is another big area, again, with the high deductible health plans and the price transparency that everyone's pushing. One of the cool innovations, and and again, it's one of those innovations that's not all that sexy, but it is cool, is to help a patient understand what are the variables in care that they can choose that affect their price. Um, You know, sometimes it's cheaper for you to do things off hours than to do them at peak hours. So how can a patient participate in finding the most economical path that works for them? How can you make sure that the patients understand what they'll owe? And how can you get them to punch that credit card on file button so that you can create a payment plan that, that makes your collections cheaper and cheaper through time? So those are kinds of innovations, I think, in the business model that will help organizations survive and, and thrive when the, when the margins get thinner and thinner. For the researchers in the crowd, we're doing a lot of work with patient-reported outcomes. And the, the thesis here is if we could understand from a patient's perspective what the outcomes were at, at two months, six months, nine months, 12 months, that we can use that information for a couple of really cool things. One is we can help the next person who faces that same choice understand what others chose and how did it work out for them. They could see their sense of outcome through time. Second, once I've made a choice, I can track myself against others like me who made that choice because maybe I've chosen poorly and should go back to the start and and go down a different path. So those are two fun uses. I think the government would like to understand comparative effectiveness and, and look at what are patients' sense of outcomes for money paid. Those types of things are part of it as well. But all sorts of fun things to help patients express their sense of outcome. And then giving the physician community and the quality community the ability to work with that data very fluidly to understand how to make changes in near real time. I, I forgot who mentioned I don't know who mentioned it, but, but someone mentioned earlier uh, the experience for the patient as it transcends uh, their their conditions from their perspective. So care and care planning and having patients feel like they're an anchor point. There is an anchor point within your organization to orchestrate the bigger picture care. When you talk to most patients, we do a lot of patient-focused study groups, there is a lot of commentary that they don't feel, they feel like the healthcare organizations are good. I think the advertising, the quality, the experience, when they touch it generally feels good. But you're this common drumbeat for most organizations. And and again, there are exceptions. I think some of the HMOs benefit because they they approach it differently in a world where a penny saved is a penny earned. But outside of the managed care world, you get this constant feedback from patients that that doesn't feel like there's someone that organizes my care. And I think with automated tools, two things can happen. Um, One is it'll be easier for you to actually organize their care. And the second thing, it'll be way easier for them to get a sense that there is someone organizing their care. There'll be a place to go, things to see, progress to understand and report on. So these kind of things, I think, will become the new norm, especially as, as the government and the payers continue to press the ACO path. The ability to coach patients is, is getting bigger. And we look at all these tools. The, the, uh, we, I mentioned the quantified physician from that Dr. Stone article earlier. The, the quantified patient is, is becoming a big thing. When you walk in the aisles at Best Buy, there's like even dedicated aisles for health and wellness and monitors and sleep monitors and pulse oximetry, all kinds of different things you can connect up. And patients are going to 
experience probably over the next 10 years a pretty impressive wave of consumer-grade diagnostics. And, you know, the FDA here might try to choke it off, uh, you know, those in the clinical community might not be big fans of consumer diagnostics, but when you look at Brazil, India, China, other markets, I think when I, when I talk to my kids, I tell them, your, your children will grow up in the tricorder era. That tricorder will actually be real. And there'll be a thing in the kitchen or in the bathroom or somewhere that you can go touch, feel, blow into, put up to your head, whatever, and it'll actually be pretty darn good, and it'll actually help you manage your health care. And it may be a replacement for a GP or a primary care person in some settings. So we'll see where that goes. I, I don't know how fast, and I don't know what the restraining forces will be, but, but you can feel it coming. How many, how, many are, how many in the room are doctors that actually like do histories and write notes and all that? Okay, good number of you. Um, how many of you like doing the family history? Just the two of you? Okay, there's a couple. <laughs> um, the good news is I, I think the notion of taking a family history in 10 years will, will be thought of as really, really, really quaint and old-fashioned. Again, in an interoperable world, it's just silly to try to remember what was wrong with mom and dad. Studies show that that's like a 50%, 60% accuracy in the first place. You, you kind of know dad had a heart problem. You don't know all the details about it. And God forbid they ask you about grandpa and grandma or uncles and aunts and other siblings. So I think what we're going to see is the notion of family history goes away, and what we'll do is we'll just electronically share actual health records, and there'll be some privacy screens and some common sense things. I don't think you need to share STDs and all that kind of stuff um, automatically. But it will be practical within two or three years, and it'll probably be common within six or seven years that when somebody's child has a really serious issue and they're trying to do the genomic... uh, understanding of, of what they could do, how they could treat it, what the origins are. I think we'll see family members donate their medical records to that genomic annotation process and bring real honest-to-goodness physician-quality phenotypic data to that puzzle. And when you talk to the genomic people, having that level of accuracy in the phenotypic data will, will actually help them make a giant step forward in understanding what to worry about, what, to under, what, what this patient is likely to experience and expect. On a more mundane front, we, we, we think that the clinical trials process can, can very successfully now be taken right to the patient. So if you've got good patient data, we can help that patient understand what clinical trials would be uniquely appropriate for them and help facilitate that recruitment process and the consenting process and, and, and bring some streamline to that whole thing so that you've got an ample supply of research candidates at all times and you can jump over that whole recruitment step. So doing a lot of work in that, in that area as well. And then once you get people on research programs and protocols, one of the common things we hear is it's hard to keep them on it. They, they mess up, those patients. They're always messing up. They, they don't come in for this. They didn't do that. They, they missed these three steps, and now we've got to kick them out. So doing the kind of work to coach the people who have signed up to a research program to stick with it and to let them know when things are happening and be a, a silent partner in making sure people stay on those programs. And we talk a lot about patient engagement outside the hospital, more in the ambulatory care setting, but a lot of work is happening to engage the patient with technology while they're in the hospital. Um, Education, care teams, helping understand who's taking care of them, self-assessments, helping manage satisfaction without asking any uh, HCAP-specific questions, Um, giving them an ability to understand their day, they can put things on their calendar that the computer can make sure that we, if we could organize the MRI scan around the fact that their mom is coming in after work, we should, those kind of things. 
and to think of it as a recovery companion as well, that, that you'll actually either send a device home because they'll be cheap enough. You can get Android devices now under $100 that can do all these things. Or you'll let the patient use their own device if they have one. But that, that patient goes home with something that's your, uh, that's your uh, conduit to talk to them and to care for them and to help them care for themselves in the, in the readmission windows where, where it does matter quite a bit. So video visits. Uh, helping them with their meds, helping make sure that they get scheduled for these appointments. One of the common reasons for readmission is they never saw a primary care doc within a week of being discharged. Simple things like shooting a picture of the wound to, to make sure that it's healing properly. And all the information, the, the Fitbit type stuff. And, and I think of this Fitbit-y, Y-thingy kind of world uh, is interesting. It, it really breaks down into three distinct use cases for us right now. The first use case is is really clinically relevant. If you're an orthopedic patient with a knee replacement and you've gone home, a Fitbit strapped to your ankle that streams data back in and, and allows your caseworker who's steering at 50 orthopedic discharges to know that these 10 are getting 500 steps a day on day three, and that's good. They're, they're probably fine. This little set of three people doesn't seem to have gotten out of bed yet for the first three days, and we need to intervene. So again, helping you direct your resources to where the need is, rather than having to shotgun everything and everybody in all the same ways. So that's use case one. I think use case two for these kinds of consumer devices are the, the chronically ill who are very engaged in trying to do better. So diabetic patients or, or CHF patients who really do care and are, are activated, and this will give you an opportunity to engage them at a new level. The third group might be the most important group to help get it funded. And the third group are the people that aren't sick in the first place, aren't likely to get sick, but they just think it's cool. <clears throat> and if you're wearing an ACO, guess which group you want? <laughs> that's, that's the group you want. So I, I think that third group is, is really important. And you see a lot of health systems coming to that realization that I don't care if it's got clinical relevance, it's just cool. We need some cool things. So. And you could have done this stuff for 10 years. We, we did this stuff back with Palo Alto Medical Center, I think, in the 2000 era. But it was just too damn hard. You had to crawl into Grandma's desk and find a phone jack and put a modem in place and wire all these pieces together. It's just too hard to, to do it at scale. Um, but with this consumer revolution and, and the quantified self, it, it really is becoming practical to do it at scale. And there's an explosion of things coming. It's... They're not all equal. They're not all good. They're not all a, a wise use of resources. But some of them will be, and some of them will be pretty cool to experiment with. And I think this is the kind of innovation where you'll, you'll have these puzzle pieces that you can put together and realize you've, you've put together something that's a new picture. And I think there's a ton of opportunity there. One of the things we realized long ago, we do a lot of things. Our, our mission is integration. Today's leaves becomes tomorrow's branches. We have to, to, to think that way. But there are all kinds of opportunities for many people to play. So one of the things we've done, and I think you see most organizations think of their work as, here's my part, and, and my part will grow, and I need to control that. When you, when you think about Apple, it's a great example. There's Apple's part, and then there's the App Store part. So we're doing a similar thing, and, and I think you'll see most others um, follow suit and, and do that similar thing, which is to, to create opportunities for public-facing web services, services for people to, to plug things in and for innovators to connect in. Now, that said, I, I sometimes, in, in difficult days, have begun to think that innovator is, is sort of comparable to whiny baby. Because a lot of innovators are, boy, if you did all this work, then I could get rich. And I remind them, no, no, that's, you have to do the work if you want to get rich. That's how it works. 
Um, so there's only so much that, that we can do because we, we as, as people who do a thing on our own have to do our thing better and better and grow it and help it thrive. But I think you'll see this evolution where there are pieces that'll plug in and um, as you look at all the people doing this consumer health side of life, I think that's a great opportunity to plug those pieces in and then use algorithms to help figure out how to use that data. So uh, we have a pretty rich open ecosystem for people to plug things into and it'll be fun to watch the, the creativity expressed through that. Uh, creating the opportunity to plug in little apps on, on your, on your patient-facing uh, world. Lots of fun things that can be done. We've also done a lot of things for the user community to allow sharing. And, um, you know, the, the, the trick is right now it's kind of within vendor things. There are some folks in, in Boston doing the smart project, which, which is interesting and cool in its own way, to try to create a, a standardized layer. I, I think that'll likely end up being a least common denominator, more of a following activity, because real innovation is hard to keep up with, especially when 10 or 20 or 30 competitors are all going to differentiate. So I think that'll be useful, but I think the richest and, and probably the best use of your resources will be to, to work within whatever technology community you've chosen, um, you know, be it an Eclipsis or a Cerner or an Epic. You'll get further ahead faster working with, with peer groups there because you share a common paradigm. And, and much like um, the opening remarks, how, how do you leverage your commonality? And, and this is just one of those ways, right? Those who, those members of your technology community are, are likely to be the most fertile group to work with to advance this kind of technology. So anyways, I'll finish with that. And I think there are a couple minutes for questions or not. Do you see what you were talking about um, in terms of how people are uh, advocating for themselves, you know, what that means in terms of the, how the healthcare providers are, are addressing that now, especially from people who are maybe advocating at a distance? So they're not local to their providers. How is that working? Well, I'm not sure I totally understand all the nuances of the question, but we, we think of that advocating for oneself in a couple ways. Uh, ten years ago, advocating for oneself uh, often meant give, give me the information because I, I feel like I'm in the dark and everyone at the healthcare place knows, but, but I, can't, I can't understand what's wrong with me. So, so tools like a patient portal have, have taken a first step in that. So you, in most situations, they don't, don't have as many people feeling in the dark. And I think we'll see a continued growth in that. Uh, do you guys participate with the Open Notes project? Anyone? So open notes is a, is a good example where whole movement for the entirety of the physician note to be put on the portal so patients see everything. Scares the bejesus out of doctors, and, and probably rightfully so, because that's, that used to be their protected place to, to think about things that, that weren't maybe even finalized, right? You might be in step three of a 10-step process to figure out what's wrong with the person, and you're going to have all these in, inter, interim steps now exposed to people, which will include some of your uncertainty. So that, that's kind of a second step. And then the other thing that, that we did, and I think others do it as well, is open up those patient-facing tools to proxies. So moms and dads can take care of kids, but moms and dads can also take care of moms and dads, each other and their parents. And allowing the healthcare process for any one patient to be um, to allow for participation from, from a wide array of family members. And that actually has gone a long ways. It makes people feel connected to the process. So I think those are, are two important things that eliminate a lot of what used to be needing to advocate to, to understand better. And it, patients feel like they're being communicated with without additional burden on the healthcare provider, right? Just seeing that used to be phone calls that didn't get returned. So I don't know if that helps, but that's what we're seeing. Yeah. 
Thank you, um, Bob Walker from UCSF. That was a remarkable talk in, in, in part because it demonstrates the breadth of the activities that you have to be involved in. Mm-hmm. I'd love you to talk for a minute about the, uh, your interface with physicians, nurses, and mm-hmm. the other people who are entering data into the computers who are mm-hmm. feeling the deluge of the requirements to enter that data. And it seems like the fastest-growing profession in medicine is scribes. Uh, only in healthcare do we bring in computers and then hire extra people as opposed to mm-hmm. lay off people. What do you think the future of documentation is going to be like for, uh, for caregivers? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It, so first off, the scribe phenomenon, I, I don't look at that as, as much of a phenomenon because it, we, just, we used to call it transcription. Um, so, it, so it's a new variant of, of an old theme. Uh, but it is a problem. I, I think, in part, we're asking for more and more quantified information, more discrete data, more buttons to be pushed, more, more codes to be sifted through to pick the right one. And where I've seen scribes, part of me says, oh, my God, we've got to stop this. We, we need to get better. We need to be smoother so people don't need them. And then you, you talk to the scribes, and you realize they're going into medical school next year. And, oh, my God, what a wonderful experience for them. Or they're in their first year or two of medical school. And I think, ooh, it would be awful to deprive them of that role. Um, so where is, where is documentation going? Um, I think two, two things. Some of it will go away because you're documenting ridiculous things that are already on file somewhere else, and, and we'll, we'll connect those dots so that you don't have to type those dots out again. Or we'll hook a patient up to a machine, and it'll just feed out. So, so some of it will actually just go away. Um, some of it will be handled more and more elegantly, and, and you'll see tools like this. I know we have them, and others are working on it as well, where if I speak to the computer, it recognizes my voice. Dragon, we've all done that. But it'll also parse the words I'm saying for meaning and content and hold that next to the record and understand what's likely needing to be updated so that it can be shared with the next caregiver and make a suggestion to you. And what you'll do is you'll, you'll speak your mind, and the computer will say, here's what I understood you to, to mean. And you'll say yay or nay, or you'll make some minor modifications. Um, we, we call ours note reader. So you, you make a note through voice recognition, it chugs through it, and, and you know, within a second it's telling you, hey, I think you should add these two problems. Looks like you discussed an allergy, and looks like you've ordered a med. Would you like me to take care of that for you? So I think that will be the second batch. And then, you know, there'll always be some, there'll always be some data entry, I guess, in, in life. But those, those will be the two first big things that take the burden a step down. One more question, Sub-B-U. So uh, I'm King from UCSF. So my question relates to how you're going to educate the people who use these tools because um, it's true that my three-year-old granddaughter can pick up my phone and buy stuff and can't, and, and can't even read. Several I, of us I don't have understand that the hard it way. at all, but <laughs> I can't figure out how to use my iPhone and she's got it all figured out. But I'm really, I'm really curious how, because there, there's a lot of things and it's educating people on how to best use all of these tools that I think is one of the, one of the reasons why we're so unhappy yeah. with this. We understand it can dance, but we are doing the two-step, and you know, the thing is whatever the kids are doing these days. Um, yeah. And so, so how, how, how have you thought through the whole process of educating the community, especially my generation, although we're going to fade into the yeah. woodwork? But are you gonna... Yeah, it's, it's, it is a fascinating puzzle. And, and I don't claim to have all the solutions to it. We're working on something. Uh, I think actually uh, Br- Brian Hoberman from Kaiser Northern Cal dubbed it comfort mode. And, and the puzzle here is that there are so many demands that you have to do this and that and the other thing, the quality measures and metrics and, and organizational standards. 
Um, so what we're doing is we're thinking of it, if you've ever hopped in one of those fancy SUVs, they'll have like a switch, right? It says I'm on dry pavement, or I'm in the snow, or I'm off-road, or I'm off-road vertical ascent mode, and you flip the dial to, to where you are. So one of the things that we've been working on behind the scenes, and it was, it was very helpful, for example, with the CVS Minute Clinics, was the ability for the, the computer system to sort of dial down to comfort mode just the, the bare essentials. Don't put all the clutter, don't put all the options um, down to comfort mode. And if you look in new versions of the, of the system, again, I, my examples are, are epic examples because that's the world I live in. But, but we've dialed down a lot of the, the presence of the interface in exchange for a little search box. And what people can do is instead of plowing through menus and you know, moving around looking for stuff, they can just go up to the search box. And if they don't normally use growth charts, because it really doesn't matter in their particular practice, but every once in a while it does, they can just go up there and type growth chart. And it'll give you a little choice to click on growth chart and poof, there'll be a growth chart in front of you. So that, that comfort mode is our approach to it right now. I think combined with some of the opportunities to eliminate certain kinds of redundant and unnecessary documentation, that'll help also. I think we're done. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.